We are privileged this morning to have Dr. Paul Sager with us. Uh, Paul has been around the world, raised uh, in Africa. Uh, most of his earlier years were there. Uh, stepped into a career of missions and then into a uh, leadership position with biblical ministries worldwide. And I, I do not know, uh, Paul, if you've kept track of how many countries you've been in. Uh, too many, too many to count. But uh, God has privileged him greatly in terms of travel, but seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus and the scripture. And I'm so grateful for that. One of the great mission minds available to us. Uh, Dr. Paul, love to have you come. And the time is yours. We're eager to hear what God has through you. Thanks, Jane. My uh, Facebook reminded me this morning, six years ago, I published this book. And uh, as I published it, this book is primarily about helping churches think through how you can find missionaries in your church, how you can equip them, and then how you send them. And it's kind of a practical how-to kind of book. And uh, once I published it and started going out, I realized uh, I had written the wrong book and that, uh, that not every church is interested in sending missionaries, which is a little bit incongruous. You know, there, there's a major denomination that has branded itself as a missionary sending denomination, and they do. They spend big bucks on, on, on sending missionaries. And they did a survey of their denomination, and uh, 88% of their churches have never sent a missionary. And I got to thinking about sort of non-denominational churches, and probably that statistic is about the same, that most churches have never sent a missionary. It's, it's a little bit hard to get your arms around it because, after all, almost every church has a missions budget, and they have certain missionaries that they support, and they might have an, even a missions conference but they've never actually launched somebody that's a member of their church to go to the mission field. And so we support people from other churches, but we don't support anybody from our own church. And uh, this book doesn't really address that so much, uh, but I got to thinking more about it, and I've been wrestling with this issue and doing a lot of uh, talking with pastors, trying to figure out what the, what the deal is and why this is true. Well, I want us this morning to think about this subject, not because Sunset needs this message, but because I want to affirm you in what you already are doing. I don't know whether you realize it or not, but Sunset is a rather unusual church. Most churches have never sent a missionary. You guys have at least a half a dozen that are members of this church that are now on the mission field. And that is highly unusual. And so there's something happening here that is different from the average church, and you might sort of take it for granted that this is just the way things are. Well, it's not. Uh, you guys are doing something rather incredible here, and so I want to affirm you in that. And keep the, and since this is a missions conference or kind of weekend, one of the reasons for this is to go back to some very foundational things and really re-entrench ourselves in those principles, so that we don't lose what we've had in the past. And so this morning, I want us to simply think through what is it to be a sending church, or what is the thing that motivates a church to be a sending church. And we're going to go to Romans chapter 10 in order to see if we can pull out some ideas from Paul as he kind of opens the curtain of his heart and shows us what it was that drove him or what, what it was that made him the kind of missionary that he was. And if we can buy into where he was and the way he thinks and the way he is, we will continue to be a sending church. We're going to take a look at three different things First couple of them, rather briefly, I want to spend a bit more time on the third one. 
But basically, when a church does not send missionaries, it's first and foremost a heart issue. Paul starts off that way in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. And when he says them, he's referring to in the text here, he's referring to the nation of Israel. His heart was for the nation of Israel who had not accepted the gospel. He says, my heart, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. He starts off with this idea, it's my heart. So that's where we want to start off this morning. It really is a heart issue. And as I read this verse, we may have glanced over a couple of words there that are really important for us to understand what Paul is saying here in verse 1. This is not just a nonchalant statement that Paul gives. He says, first of all, this is my heart's desire. And that word desire is oftentimes translated covet. Now, normally we think of coveting as being a bad thing. And we're not supposed to covet this, covet that, and we used it in a negative way. But it can also be used in a positive way, which Paul does here. He says, the thing that I covet, and when I use that word covet, immediately you understand that there's some intensity to that word. It's not just a desire, but there's intent. I really, really want that thing. And that's what Paul is saying here about his desire for people to be saved. He says, the thing that I'm craving, it's a heart issue. It's an emotional thing. It's something that was coming from his gut. He was saying, the thing that really drives me, the thing that I'm passionate about, my heart's desire, my coveting. And secondly, he says, my prayer. And normally when we think about prayer, we think about, well, you know, we just sort of rattle off a prayer, God bless the missionaries kind of thing. But Paul was, Paul chose a word here that is actually the word to plead or to beg. Paul said, the thing that I'm begging God for, the thing that I'm pleading with God for. So you see the emotion in this? This is not just a, a superficial issue with Paul. This was, this was coming from his heart, that I'm coveting, I'm pleading. The thing that I really want most is for my Jewish countrymen to come to Christ. Previously, he had said in the same book, he said, I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's an amazing statement. If I understand what Paul was getting at there, he was simply saying, I would be willing to trade my place in heaven so that other people could get there. I don't know that I'm there, are you? Would you go to hell so that other people could go to heaven? That seems to be what Paul is saying there. He's saying, I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen according to the flesh. Is it any wonder that Paul did what he did when he had that kind of passion, that kind of commitment, that kind of desire, that kind of pleading with God? Is it any wonder that this was a big deal to him and that he literally sacrificed his life for the cause of Christ? This was something that was coming from his heart. So, if a church doesn't send missionaries, it could be a heart issue. Maybe we're not quite where Paul is, and we're not quite as passionate about this. And it's not an emotional issue. It's not something that we covet. Well, obviously, if that's not the case, then missions is not going to be that big a deal. And we're certainly not going to be interested in sending people out from our church if we are not passionate like Paul was. But Secondly, notice that it's not only a heart issue, it's a theological issue. Verse 2 says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. 
the nation of Israel had a zeal for God. In fact, the majority of the people of the world have a zeal for God. There are pockets of atheists around the world, but the vast majority of the people of the world are very religious. They are very zealous. In fact, many of the peoples of the world are more zealous and dedicated to their religion than we are to Christianity. And they'll go through much more and demonstrate more commitment to their cause than we do for ours. So it's not a lack of zeal. The problem is a lack of knowledge, he says in verse 2. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, there's a piece missing. There's something that they need to know. What do they need to know? Verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Right there is the dividing line between the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christianity and all the rest of the religions of the world. That's the issue. Am I trying to establish my own righteousness or am I taking on the righteousness of Christ? Am I trying to do enough good things so that I can get to heaven or am I willing to just surrender and say I need God's grace in my life? That's sort of the dividing line. That's the watershed between if someone is pursuing the gospel of Jesus Christ and really all the rest of the religions of the world, and every religion sort of comes up with their list. Some will say, well, you got to do these three things. Some will say five. Some will say 15. Others will say, well, you got to do a whole bunch of them. We don't know how many exactly, but you got to keep doing. But it's all about doing. And if I can do enough to establish my own righteousness, then I'll make it to heaven. God says, you can't do that. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to complete the list. So therefore, you instead take on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. My parents were missionaries in Nigeria, and uh, that's where I grew up, out in in the bush, out in the middle of of nowhere in this little village called Gadaka in northeastern Nigeria. And uh, since I was the only white kid around, the white white boy, I had two sisters, but... uh, all my friends were the kids in the village, and, and I had one special friend. His name was Bullis, and, and Bullis and I were good friends. We'd, we spent a lot of time playing together, and, and we were both seven years old at the time of the story that I'm telling you right now. And uh, Bullis came over to my house one morning, and we were going to go out and play, and, and uh, we, got, we went out into the bush, and we were wandering around doing stuff, and, and he starts telling me the story of how the night before he had been in a church service, and he had, he had received Christ as his Savior. And I still can remember as a seven-year-old kid thinking, well, that's wonderful. That's why my dad came here. That's why he's a missionary. We, we wanted people like you to come to Christ. Well, he turned the tables on me and he said, well, what about you, Paul? Are, are you a Christian? And I said, well, of course I am. You know, my dad's the missionary. And he said, well, I don't think that counts. Um, and I said, but, you know, I'm from America. We're all, mission- we're all Christians. And he says, oh, I, don't, I don't think that counts. And, and so here's two little seven-year-old kids out in the bush of Nigeria uh, having this theological argument. And, uh, and finally I said, the only way I can sort my buddy out is to take him talk to my dad. So we go see my dad. And I said, here's what he's telling He's telling me I'm not a Christian. And my dad said, he's right. And he sorted out my theology, not Bullis's. And uh, for the first time in my life, I came to the realization that nothing externally ha- accounted for my own righteousness and that it didn't matter who I was, who my parents were, the fact that I went to church, all this kind of none of that mattered because I had to come to a place in my life 
where I reached out and accepted the righteousness of Christ and the forgiveness of sin and the fact that Christ had paid the penalty on the cross for my sin. And there was nothing I could do to earn that salvation. It was a gift of God to me. And I simply there in our home, out in a village in northeastern Nigeria, reached out and accepted that gift of salvation. Now maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're like me. Maybe you're thinking, well, I've done a lot of good things. I, I'm in church on Sunday, and I'm not that bad a person. And you sort of got your list of things that you're trying to do to establish your own righteousness. Well, like me, may I encourage you to think through this. Because you could be like these Jews here in this first part of this chapter who, who are zealous, but not according to knowledge. And that knowledge is we're ignorant of the righteousness of God that I can't establish my own righteousness, but rather I accept God's righteousness. Only Jesus Christ can proclaim myself as righteous. I can't do that for myself. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're wrestling with that. Maybe you've never even processed that. But basically, you need to come to this place where you reach out and accept the free gift of salvation like I did as a seven-year-old kid. You can leave here this morning knowing for sure of your eternity, not because of how good you are or how much you've done, but because of what Christ has done. And so it could be here that uh, it's a heart issue. It could be a theological issue that People haven't bought into this idea that, that you've got to receive Christ as your Savior or the gospel has to be preached for people to be saved. Now, in the past, that was sort of a topic that liberals debated. In other words, people that were kind of going to the fringes of Christianity, they were questioning, do, do people really need to hear the gospel in order to be saved? What if a person is out in the jungle somewhere and they're just really zealous about their world, their, their religion? Isn't that, isn't that zeal good enough to get them to heaven? And, and uh, to put it in crass terms, we talk about, are the heathen really lost? And that used to be a discussion that only the liberals were having, but unfortunately that is now a discussion that's happening in the evangelical church. And there are churches that used to believe that Jesus Christ was the way, the truth, and the life, but kind of have moved away from that. So theologically, once you start moving away from that, there really is no reason for missions, is there? In other words, if everyone's going to make it to heaven anyway, why would we send missionaries? If we don't have to proclaim the gospel and tell them about Jesus and the plan of salvation and that their zeal is without knowledge, if, if none of that stuff is true, then there's really no reason for missions. And I, I wonder if perhaps one of the reasons why we're not sending missionaries like we could is simply because we don't really believe that. We don't really believe that a person that has not heard the plan of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't really believe that they are lost. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among men by whom we might be saved. Kind of a clear statement. There's not much ambiguity there. But yet it's being debated, and it's eroding our passion for missions and our desire to send missionaries. And so it could be a theological issue that is hindering people from going or, or churches from sending missionaries. I, I don't know. So maybe it's a hard issue. Maybe it's a theological issue. But I think for the most part, 
in the majority of churches, at least that I'm in, it's not those two. Well, maybe a little bit of the first one, but theologically, everybody's sort of committed to this. And But the third, it could just be a very practical issue. The next few verses, we're not going to look at them right now. You might want to read them later. But he amplifies a little bit this theme that he introduces in the first three verses. But by the time we get down to verse 13, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we want to see happen around the world. We want people to come to a place like I did as a seven-year-old kid where I realize I have to reach out and accept the gifts of salvation that God has offered. That's what we want to happen. But how is that going to happen? It's really a practical issue. Now, what I want you to do is to think about the, the topic of dominoes, because this has sort of given us a visual as to where I want us to go, or it will help you to understand what he's going to say here in the next few verses. Uh, we've played with dominoes uh, before. Probably There is a game you can play with dominoes, you know. It's not just this, but there is a game you can play with them. But most of us have just done this. We take dominoes and we line them up, and, you know, you push the first one and the whole... And, and, and you can line 10,000 dominoes up, and you can knock the last one down simply by pushing the first one, Right? So that's the idea behind dominoes. Now keep that in mind because what Paul is going to do here in this passage is he's setting up a row of dominoes. And we're going to get to the place to real, to, where we see what he says is the first step in pushing those dominoes. What, what is the first domino that has to fall for this last one to fall? The last one to fall is verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the domino before that, verse 14, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed. And the domino that falls before that is, how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? But there's a domino that has to fall before that. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? But there's actually a domino that has to fall before that. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? That's why I call my book Senders. There has to be people like you and churches like you that are willing to push that first domino, that are willing to send somebody, because we're not going to have verse 13 happening unless there's a bunch of people back here that are pushing on that first domino of actually sending missionaries. And that's just a practical issue, not a theological one. It's not an emotional one. It's not a hard issue so much. It's just saying, this is what we're going to do. We're actually going to push that first domino. Because we want this chain reaction to happen. I wonder why it is that you joined this church, or maybe that you attend this church if you haven't joined, or maybe why you showed up here today. Uh, I would assume that, uh, that there are other churches you could have chosen to go to or join, but for some reason you ended up here this morning. For some reason, you're part of this church, or maybe you're taking a look at this church. What is it that sort of attracted you? Can you answer that for just a moment? Let, let me pause for just a second, give you a bit of time to process that. Uh, what, what sort of tipped the scale and said, okay, it's, it's sunset. It's not the other church or the other churches in town. Maybe you came here because you like the music. Maybe because you like the preaching. Maybe because you like the pastor. Maybe because you like the people. You know, you found people that are warm and embraced you, and this is kind of just like family. And maybe you came because they've got a great children's program and, uh, or, or some other program that you sort of really like. Uh, I wonder, were any of those things the reasons why you chose Sunset? 
May I suggest to you that the the main reason you should have chosen this church is because of the mission of this church. They're very clear in declaring that we are here to make disciples of Jesus Christ, not only here but around the world. That's the mission, that's the big why we exist. That's the reason we're doing all the stuff that we do is because we want verse 13 to happen. We want people to come to a saving knowledge of Christ to help them to grow in Christ so that they can go out and reach other people with Christ. That's what this is all about. It's all about helping people to grow in Christ and be trained to go out and do missionary work. And your missionary work might be in this neighborhood. For some of you, it may be somewhere around the world. But we're all engaged in this thing of making disciples. That's the big why. That's the big reason. That's the thing that keeps us moving together. My last car I got um, that I had, I, I got 80,000 miles out of a set of tires. And it's not because I'm a good driver. Uh, but what I did was when I bought the car, I went to Firestone and got a lifetime alignment uh, agreement. And so after two or three times, you basically pay for it. It pays for itself. But the agreement is you could take your car in every day and they'd have to line your tires if you wanted them to. And so I, I didn't do that. But every time I changed the oil, I'd say, hey, align the tires. And they had to do it because that was the contract. They had the agreement. And so I kept my tires aligned. And I think that's probably the reason why I got a lot of miles out of those tires. What happens when your tires get out of a line? If they're doing this, you start wearing them out, don't you? And if they're going in two different directions, you know, they start, you, you start getting a wobble in the steering wheel and they start bouncing, and, and it's not a very pleasant ride if your tires are not aligned. Well, that's one of the keys to a church having unity is you've got to align everyone with the mission of the church. Why are we here? You may like the children's program, but that's not why we're here. You might like the music, but that's not why we're here. We are gathering together as a group of believers because we want to be equipped to go out and make disciples for Jesus Christ, some locally, some internationally. But that's why we're here. And when you can get a whole church singing that tune and aligned with that purpose, it is a beautiful thing because everyone's pulling in the same direction. You don't get the speed wobbles and wearing things out, and oftentimes the problems that exist in a church or that arise in the church is simply because one person is saying, well, we're going that direction, and the other person says, no, I think we ought to go that direction, and they get into conflict. And so there needs to be alignment. A while back, it must have been several years ago, I, I, uh, I wrote an article. I forget where it was published, but I wrote an ar- article called Cancel the Missions Program. And that's a little bit incongruous for uh, a guy that's been in missions my whole life. I was raised as a missionary kid, uh, was a missionary myself, been a director of a mission organization, and I said, cancel the missions program. Well, what I was trying to do was arrest people's attention to think about two ideas. One is, when we talk about missions, we often put an S on the end of it, don't we? When we put an S on the end of a word, typically it, it kind of implies that maybe there's more than one. Well, there's not more than one mission. There's a mission that God gave to the church of Jesus Christ. So immediately, we've got to sort of get all aligned with what that one mission is. And then secondly, to call it a program, what we've done is we have just taken it from up here to bring it down here because we have a children's program and a music program and a Sunday school program and we have a a VBS program and we have this Christmas program. We've got all these other... Oh, let's add the missions program. And so missions is not a program. It is the mission of the church to go out and make disciples both here and around the world. 
And when we can get everyone aligned around that and canceling the missions program, it's a beautiful thing. And churches then see the importance of sending missionaries out. Just like the military commander. They're very clear. The military is really good at this, of defining the mission. The soldiers know exactly what they've got to accomplish. And Jesus didn't leave us without marching orders. He did. And it's a matter of us simply saying, am I going to fall in line with what God wanted me to do? So this is a practical issue. It could be a hard issue. It could be a theological issue. Or it could just be a practical issue of not having anybody pushing that first domino. Now, who is it here in this room this morning that ought to have their finger on that first domino? If you're going to be ascending church, which you are, whose responsibility is that to push that first domino? Because we want verse 13 to happen. But verse 13 is not going to happen unless somebody actually has their finger poised and is pushing on it. I'd like to recommend to you or suggest to you that there are three people or groups of people in this congregation that can be domino pushers, okay? The first is those of you who are parents or those of you who might be grandparents. Those of you who are parents have incredible potential for helping this church to be a missionary-sending church. What do we mean by that? My... uh, My granddad was a Swedish immigrant. He uh, came here as a teenager. There was a farmer in South Dakota. Back in those days, they didn't have enough farmhands, and so he he was from Sweden. And so he wrote over to Sweden and said, I need some guys to come here and help me on the farm, and I'll pay for their passage on the steamship if they'll come over, and uh, they'll work a number of years and pay off their fare, and and then they're free to go. And so my granddad, as a 15-year-old teenager, and his brother took him up on that, and they came to America. But my granddad, uh, he worked off his, his, his fare, or however many years that was he had to work, and then he married the farmer's daughter and started his own farm, and, and he, became a, he, he became a really godly, godly man. And in their church, there up in South Dakota, they, they were a very mission-minded church, and they would always have missionaries coming through. And my granddad would always get these missionaries to come out to the farm, and either come out for a meal or for a day or two, or even for several weeks there were missionaries that would come and spend some time with him. And so what would happen would be my dad had this constant stream of input from missionaries hearing their stories of what they had been doing around the world. And obviously God had called my dad to be a missionary, but the, 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 the medium through which he used that was a father who had a desire and a passion for his kids to be missionaries. And he exposed them to missionaries and to mission life because he wanted my dad and his two sisters to understand what mission life was all about. And he was constantly helping my dad to understand this. And I tell you that story simply to illustrate the idea that you as parents have incredible potential for influencing your kids to think in that direction. And your kids will read through you the priorities that you have in life, and if you will articulate that and demonstrate that in multiple ways, perhaps you can be the catalyst for your, mission, for your kids thinking in terms of international ministry. They'll read that first and foremost through you. You've got them a whole lot more time than the pastor does or the Sunday school teacher does. You've got the constant influence to help them to think through what they are going to do with their life. And I realize that this is a difficult issue for us to process as parents and 
may I say, especially as grandparents, now that I am one, it is, this is a tough call. But Jesus put it this way, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Pretty strong statement. Or in another passage, Jesus put it this way, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospel's, but that he shall receive a hundredfold now, and this time houses, brethren, sisters, mothers, children, lands, and persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. Jesus said there are some people that are going to leave houses and lands and relatives for the cause of Christ. We call them missionaries. So there is sort of the special ops of the local church. There are those that are are going to be called upon to go out there and do it. And we as a congregation have a responsibility of sending them. But that kind of heart and consideration even that, that we, would, we would consider this comes first of all from parents. One of the trends that is taking place right now in North America is that Bible colleges are finding a very difficult time to keep their doors open. Bible institutes are almost out of existence. There's a few here and there, but uh, Bible colleges are really struggling as well. There used to be there used to be many many Bible colleges here in North America that were preparing people for one of two things: you're either going to be a pastor or a missionary. And so they had to morph kind of their agenda, and they're preparing people for a whole lot of other things other than those two things, and they're really struggling to keep their doors open. And so our missions call our our Bible college movement is not what it once was here in North America. And part of it, the, uh, the leaders of these colleges say, part of that reason is simply because parents don't want them to do this. They want them to get a, a, a career in which they can make a lot of money, and uh, they want that kind of job security. Why would you go to a Bible college and learn how to be a missionary? You can't make a living out of that. And so a lot of this, our, our decline in Bible colleges, is due to the fact that parents are influencing their children in a certain direction. What would happen if all of the parents here in this congregation had as their first desire, if God would allow them to do that, to go to the mission field? We would just have a flood of people leaving for the mission field. You parents have an incredible potential for influencing the, pe- the people in your church to go to the mission field. And so parents, you, so to speak, have your finger poised above that first domino. And you know 13 needs to happen, but are you going to push that one? And that's a tough thing to do because as you send your kids and your grandkids to the mission fields of the world, you're not going to have that close relationship with them. They're not going to be there for Thanksgiving dinner. Christmas is not going to be the same. You're going to miss being able to spend time with the grandkids or with your kids. And there's a price to be paid. And so I realize that this is this is counterintuitive for you to want to send anybody to the mission field, especially your own family members. But once verses 1, 2, and 3 of Romans chapter 10 start taking hold, it really comes down to the basic issue, am I going to be obedient or not? Are we going to be passionate about sending people from the, to the mission field? And if so, maybe my kids are some of those that need to go. And I think when we get to heaven probably some of the great heroes of the faith. They're not going to be necessarily the missionaries that went, but they're going to be the parents that stayed. 
and sent their kids to the mission field and were willing to let go of them and allow them to go. And we realize that that is an incredible sacrifice on your part to be able to do that. We honor you and applaud you for being willing to do that. But remember that God did not ask you to do something that he did not do himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gave his son to be a missionary. So that's something that we can do. So first of all, in this congregation, you parents have incredible potential here to help Continue this church as a missionary sending church. Secondly, it's got to do with the pastor, and you guys are fortunate to have a pastor that believes this and practices this. It's happened, and it happens simply because the pastor wants it to happen. It's hard to believe or to process this idea, but there are pastors that don't want this to happen. And you can sort of understand that because, after all, it's going to be difficult to let go of some of your key leaders because that's what we're doing. When we send people to the mission field, we're not sending people that just couldn't make it anywhere and need a job. We're t- taking a look at the Pauls and Barnabases of our church, and we're saying these are key people, and we're going to let them go to the mission field. I mean, think of it this way. Let's say you've got a really a top-notch leader in your church. He's probably, probably doing multiple ministries, and all of a sudden, he's gone. Who's going to do that ministry? He's probably putting money in the offering plate, and it's sort of a double whammy because now not only does he not put money in the offering plate, we got to support him financially. And so you get hit both ways. So you can understand why this is really difficult for pastors to process this. And as I've talked with pastors, they've been very transparent oftentimes with me and They've said, here's the reasons why we don't send missionaries, and that's one of them. There's this cost and a sacrifice. And if if you're struggling in a church and just trying to make ends meet and you don't have enough leaders and you don't have enough money, you don't want to let go of Paul and Barnabas. You want to hang on to your key leaders. And so I recognize this is counterintuitive, and I'm not beating up pastors. They've got a tough job. This is a hard thing to do. But when a pastor has an open hand and is willing to say, go, and we're willing to share our people with the peoples of the world. The pastor has his finger on that first domino. The third group of people, in case we missed anybody, are simply the rest of you. Maybe you're not a parent, maybe you're not a grandparent, maybe you're not a pastor, but you realize the rest of you could be engaged in recruiting for the mission field. In Acts chapter 13, we have a pivotal uh, chapter there because Uh, from Acts chapter 13 on through the rest of it, we basically have Paul's missionary journeys. So all the stuff that you know about Paul and his missionary journeys and the epistles being written and all the rest of that kind of stuff, that all happens after Acts chapter 13. So Acts chapter 13 is really a a turning point in in this whole thing called missions. And in that chapter, here's how the story goes. Verse 1 says, Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who has been brought up by Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now the first thing to observe about that statement is when God wanted missionaries, first of all, he went where? To the local church. We as organizations go to Bible colleges and seminaries, but we really ought to be going to the local church because that's where missionaries really come from. Bible colleges and seminaries help prepare people, but the source of, of missionaries is really the local church. They're right here. Secondly, notice that when God wanted missionaries, he identified certain people within the congregation, and they were the leaders of that congregation. They weren't the people, you know, we maybe ought to stop picking on the teenagers. We ought to pick on those of you that are already leaders in the church. 
and have established your credibility in our walk with God. And that was how God did it back here in chapter 13 when he wanted missionaries. He went to the leadership pool and he lists six or eight of them. And out of those, he takes two. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work unto which I have called them. Now see if you can answer this question. Let me read you that phrase again. To whom is the Spirit of God speaking? The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Well, it doesn't really say who the Spirit of God is speaking to other than it doesn't say he was speaking to Paul and Barnabas. Now that doesn't seem to make sense to us because, you know, as Americans, we don't want anybody telling us what to do. If I'm going to be a missionary, I'll decide that on my own. I don't, I don't need your information. Uh, but here the Spirit of God is saying, see Paul and Barnabas? Send them. So it was either the leadership team of the church or his congregation or other people in the church that were being sensitive to what God was doing, and they said, Paul and Barnabas need to be missionaries. Now, what would happen if the whole congregation here at Sunset had this as their agenda? You're praying that God would raise up missionaries from this church. You would be coming together every Sunday, and you'd be sort of taking a look around, and you're saying, I wonder who it is is the next missionary from this church. And right now as I talk about this, I'll bet there are some of you that are thinking, yeah, I know who the next missionary from this church ought to be. Maybe you'd need to get a little bit vocal about that. I'd like to get out of the recruiting business. As a mission organization, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort trying to recruit missionaries, but that's really not our job. You ought to be doing that. And I'd like to give that job over to you so I can retire and and do something else. You need to find the missionaries in this church. You're the one that knows people here. You're the one that sees them doing ministry. You know who's godly. You know who qualifies. You know who God is preparing. Maybe you just need to get your finger on that first domino and be willing to push it. And maybe God would use your word of encouragement to someone in this church to truly consider international ministry and going to the mission field. Maybe God would use you as the person to push that domino. So I come back to where I started. It could be a heart issue, it could be a theological issue, but chances are it's just practical. We've got to start thinking this way. Those of us who are parents, grandparents, pastors already think this way. What about the rest of you in the congregation? Would you be willing to start thinking this way? That we have a legacy, you have a legacy as a church of sending missionaries. Don't drop the ball now. Don't stop. As part of your DNA, don't rip that out. Continue to do what you've been doing in the past. In fact, not only continue to do that, intensify it and increase your sending capacity because there are potential missionaries right here in this room right now. And if you're sitting here thinking, I can't imagine me being a missionary, you have just bet the first qualification of being a missionary because all of us at one time never thought we could be a missionary. I don't know who made this statement, but I'll conclude with this. The greatness of a church is not how many you can get in, but how many you can send out. And some of the smallest churches have sent out the most missionaries. It's not the size of the church. It's the size of your sending capacity. Father, I pray that you would continue to bless this church, first of all, in their heart for you, but also their heart for the world. Thank you, Lord, for the many that have left this place to go out and do ministry elsewhere. 
But Lord, we do pray that you would continue that legacy and that in the years to come, there would be a steady stream of people that are leaving from here to do ministry there. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up those who would be recruiters and help to identify the people that could do the missionary work that needs to be done around the world. So bless, I pray, this congregation and help them to continue to be a sending church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.